Welcome to Agnes Scott College's podcast series. This series features a variety of topics and themes from different offices and departments of Agnes Scott College, all exploring our mission to think deeply, live honorably, and engage the social and intellectual challenges of our time. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this podcast. My name is Zoe Moore, class of 2021, and I am an Africana Studies major. I will be serving as today's moderator. This episode is the accumulation of a four-part series highlighting issues of inequity during the COVID-19 pandemic. Our series has brought together Agnes Scott professors, staff, and alumni to bring forward these important implications and address the social challenges. Today, we will be discussing the economic, workplace, and legal implications as we prepare to rebound from the pandemic. Our panelists today are Dr. Ruth Owaifo Oyelere, Associate Professor of Economics at Agnes Scott College, Attorney Elizabeth Davis, Class of 1985, Partner at Burr Informant LLP, and Dr. Augustus Bonner Cochran, Professor of Political Science at Agnes Scott College. Let's get right into it. Professor Cochran, what do you think the crisis reveals about current society and politics, especially the politics of competing and responses? For instance, the college is in Decatur, Georgia. Can you talk about the competing responses from, let's say, the state of Georgia, the city of Decatur, and maybe even the city of Atlanta? Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I think it's interesting to start with just thinking just a second of the magnitude of this catastrophe. Uh, apparently, in April, something like 80% of Americans were on lockdown. Uh, there are people predicting that we're losing 35% of our GDP uh, this month. Unemployment uh, is at 20%, and the Economic Policy Institute is predicting 10% for the year. Uh, someone has said that it's on the order of a Hurricane Katrina for the whole country instead of just for New Orleans. And someone else mentioned that if we could chart this on the Richter scale, uh, the Great Depression would be a perfect 10. The Great Recession in 2008 would only be an 8.5, and this would be a 9. So we're talking about a huge magnitude of uh, problem. Uh, it is interesting to compare our situation locally with other uh, states since we're taking a very decentralized approach to this. My daughter lives in Oregon, which has uh, a Democratic liberal governor as opposed to our conservative Republican governor and has taken a very different sort of approach. And again, there are bound to be many, many factors, but I've noticed that they seem to be having about one quarter of the incidence of the disease that Georgia has been having, uh, both in deaths and um, cases relative to population. So I would just say the, the one thing I think is most interesting is George Packer had a, a phenomenal article in The Atlantic where he said, if uh, the disease uh, reveals or uh, attacks people uh, in a way that reflects their underlying conditions, uh, making them more vulnerable, that we could think of the United States and what sort of underlying conditions our society brings to this that are revealed by the virus. And I'll just, I can talk more about this, but just to, to be brief, 
I mean, I think one is the incredible inequality. Uh, we've always had inequality, but the magnitude and the type of inequality that the country has experienced in the last few decades is of a different type and of a different order. And just that, that has all sorts of ramifications. Maybe we can talk about the workforce as we go forward and uh, expendable workers, uh, or I should have said essential, but I think in the way we're acting there are expendable. Uh, but it just the, the health insurance and the lack of health insurance and the underinsurance that Americans experience because we have an employment linked system rather than a universal system would be one thing. Another thing I would say is the neoliberal dominance um, of the political ideology of neoliberalism that has cut back on government, has emphasized uh, reducing government, privatization, outsourcing. We've gone through four decades of that. It's interesting, somebody said, just like there are no, uh, there are no atheists in a foxhole, there are no neoliberals in a crisis, uh, so the government has just appropriated about two and a half trillion dollars to fight this crisis, despite the neoliberal ideology, although we're beginning to see it come back and have influence in both the way the uh, policy is shaped and the aid is given out and the reluctance to have yet another, uh, another bailout. Uh, I think also I would say the extreme partisan polarization has shaped the response to this. Again, compare Oregon with Georgia is just one uh, example of that, but uh, you can see it, uh, something like 65% of Democrats early on said that they were worried about the disease personally or someone they know getting it, whereas something like 35% of Republicans had the similar worry. So that's very much shaping the response. And the last thing is our sort of Calvinistic uh, work ethic. Americans, I have Brazilian friends who tell me that Brazilians work to live, whereas Americans live to work. Uh, here we are paying people not to work, which it's not unprecedented. We've done that in farm subsidies over the years, but it just doesn't feel right. And you can see that in some of the political pressures. If I could add one other thing, and then I'll... Uh, pass the mic. Uh, in terms of our legal background, what you really see is the importance of federalism, uh, the reluctance of the Trump administration to offer a kind of centralized, coordinated um, approach to the crisis has been very interesting. Somebody has said it's like having an air traffic control tower with no one in the tower. Uh, instead, the uh, the option has been at the center to leave this to the governors and the states. And that has just shaped our uh, response very dramatically, especially when combined with that political polarization, for example, there's some talk that the national government is more willing to fund states, which tend to be uh, more heavily Republican and not willing to uh, fund cities which tend to be predominantly democratic and so these kind of conditions have very much shaped the kind of response we've had. Thank you so much. 
uh, let's go ahead and turn to the legal aspects for a moment. Attorney Davis, what are some of the legal and economic considerations to reopening workplaces, including returning to school in the fall? What type, what top workplaces issues come to mind? Thanks, Zoe. I, uh, I, I must say that that my topic um, compared to the um, the conversation that Gus just engaged in is going to be stunningly boring. Um, it is it is complicated um, because of that decentralization that Gus discussed and described, um, and that is that. So you you need to keep in mind to start that to the extent that we're discussing what the legal requirements are, we're talking by definition about a baseline. What is the bare minimum that is required and why? Uh, and where does that come from? And with regard to the issues that uh, businesses face in light of the pandemic, uh, we have uh, federal and state statutes and regulations, local ordinances, agency guidance, um, oftentimes these things are in conflict. Um, I mean, even in Georgia, we have a governor taking one position and, a, and in Atlanta, a mayor taking another. Um, and so to the extent that we're analyzing these issues, we're analyzing them very specifically based on the business and where it is and who is involved with it and how they're affected. Um, so just to sort of step back for a minute and, and go through some of those issues. Um, we have, for example, at the federal level, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, uh, OSHA. OSHA has a general duty clause that requires employers to provide employees a workplace free from recognized hazards likely to cause death or serious physical harm. All of that evaluation depends on what the business is and what protective measures can be put in place. Um, OSHA has already issued guidance for reopening. Again, it is fact specific. Um, they, they start with evaluating what risk is associated with the business based on the extent to which employees have close contact with each other or close contact with people known or likely to have come in contact with the virus. Uh, by and large, um, employers are dealing with low risk situations. Um, interestingly, to the extent that uh, college and university issues were part of the sort of uh, premise of the questions that we were posed early on, um, colleges and schools are considered medium risk, generally speaking, environments. Um, and that's because people are coming in contact with the general public more often than not. Um, they're living in close quarters and, and, um, and that creates its own sort of universe of issues. Um, but the kinds of considerations that OSHA has suggested that employers consider when they're getting ready to reopen um, are putting in place uh, PPE, personal protective equipment. So masks, perhaps gloves, um, uh, disinfecting wipes, all of those sorts of things that, that folks have gotten used to using and keeping with them. Um, enhanced cleaning procedures, making sure depending on the environment that we're using disinfectants known to address the virus and doing cleaning 
very frequently. Um, doorknobs are an unrisk, for example. So just, just navigating through a common area um, can create its own risks. Uh, social distancing measures in the workforce. Um, I think the college, like most employers, my firm as well, um, everyone that can is working remotely. So that's, a, that's one extreme of social distancing. Um, six feet, nine feet between workers is a, a sort of a recognized and recommended distance to the extent that it's practicable. When it's not, risks go up and measures that need to be put in place uh, become more extensive. Um, staggered work schedules is another consideration. So if a business is reopening, oftentimes they will not bring everyone back at once. Um, and they'll have them work uh, odd schedules every other day, half a day and half a day. Inevitably again, and we'll get into this more in a minute, all of these choices, all of these responses have economic impact. They, they create other risks to the business employees. Um, and so at every turn, we're trying to balance those and identify where we can stay on track, meet our mission, and, and minimize the risk to everyone. Um, another sort of federal consideration um, is the EEOC, uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And so there we're dealing with making sure that there isn't a disparate impact to any particular group of employees based on the decisions that we're making. Um, and, and the first recommendation that the EEOC makes of any business that is getting ready to reopen is make a plan. Sit down and think about how you're gonna do this, who it's gonna impact, and how you're gonna make sure that you're making objective decisions based on data uh, and not because someone irritates you or you think it's too much trouble uh, to take any of that into account. So the first consideration there is making sure there's good communication with employees. Make sure they know what the new policies and procedures are gonna be. Um, there are gonna be new screening procedures. By and large, when you're bringing employees back into the workplace, you're gonna be checking them at least daily to make sure that they don't have a temperature, a fever, um, to make sure that they haven't developed a sore throat, that they, they haven't come in contact with someone that they know has, um, has the virus or has been exposed to the virus. Um, then we've got issues about self-reporting if any of these symptoms develop, um, ensuring that employees know that they have to subject themselves to these um, to all of these measures or run the risk of um, some sort of disciplinary action being sent home for example um, and then the same enhanced workplace safety measures that we talked about before um, as we're doing the screening as we're collecting the data that we need to make sure that people are staying safe all of a sudden we have a whole new world of data that is confidential. And so we've now got to figure out how are we gonna do the screening so that it's maintained privately, so that, that we're only keeping enough to protect ourselves, to demonstrate that we've made effective decisions if we've sent an employee home, 
that it's based on real data. Uh, all of these are concerns that we have to keep in mind. Um, and then the EEOC as well tells us that employees with a disability that may put them at greater risk if they contact the virus um, are entitled to reasonable accommodations. And the EEOC has already said, in this instance, reasonable accommodations can mean a temporary reassignment, a change of schedule, a change of responsibility, whatever needs to happen to make sure that within reason, they remain safe and the business can continue to operate. So those are the sort of the, the baseline concerns. Frankly, so many of the more challenging issues come up as businesses, just as I think Gus was describing, are trying to decide what they're going to look like and how they're going to remake themselves uh, in light of the pandemic. Oftentimes, we've got um, companies that can no longer afford the workforce that they had before. Uh, and so they've got to decide now who they're going to lay off and why and carefully document those decisions. They've got to decide what their business model is going to be. Can they continue to operate at all? Do they need to sell assets? Do they need to, you know, are they gonna be able to make money the way they've been making it in the past? Um, so that they can continue to provide the services that are essential to their mission. Um, all of those considerations are part and parcel of, of the legal analysis that protects the business. Um, and, and in context, because again, part of the question was in light of a, a college or university setting, it becomes that much more complicated in this environment because we're talking about a college, which is a business, which has characteristics of so many other businesses. Its mission is to educate, but people live there in very close quarters. So it's providing housing, it's providing food, um, it's, prov it's, it's delivering a culture um, and, and bringing people together. And certainly in, in my experience with Agnes Scott, that was one of the things it did best. Um, the, the, the relationship, all of the relationships that I have from my time at the college are incredibly strong and have served me well for 30 plus years. Um, I value them incredibly and everyone that I know who went through it as well feels the same way. And so there is a drive, I think, would inherently be a drive to make sure that you have systems in place to make sure that those relationships can continue to be fostered and developed. And yet to do that without putting the student body, the staff, the faculty at risk. Thank you so much. Um, it's awesome to hear that Agnes has given you those close ties and you know lessons that you can still use today and give to our viewers in this podcast. Now let's go ahead and go to our third question. This question is for Professor Ruth and Professor Gus. As colleges and other organizations around the country uh, deliberately and discuss the possibility of reopening, 
what do you think are the most important social equity or economic issues that should be considered for all employees, customers, students, faculty, staff, so that we do not inadvertently widen the social economic gaps? Well, thank you so much. Um, the reality is with, whenever there's a crisis, especially an exogenous shock to the economy, um, usually what happens as we've seen in previous um, recessions is that inequality tends to increase. So if you look at data in terms of wealth during the period of the recession, we saw a significant increase in the inequality between those who are very high income and those who are not. And again, that just suggests to us that this is typically what happens. But in terms of the economic issues, which I want to focus more on, typically where the problem really lies is that in the decision to either open or to delay opening, firms, organizations, and colleges are going to try to compare costs and benefits. You know, so they're going to basically think about what are the potential costs of reopening or what are the potential benefits. And this usually drives decision making. The challenge usually is how are those costs thought about? You know, their implicit costs, their explicit costs, and economists tend to focus on this. And typically what sometimes happens is that the explicit costs are focused on, but the implicit costs are ignored. And without a robust view of both the explicit and the implicit costs, decisions could be made that could end up not being optimal. So even in thinking about do we, do we open or do we delay opening, it's really important to look at a very holistic picture of all the costs. So I'm gonna talk about five you know, things to consider in terms of costs. And interestingly, um, Tony Davis has touched on some of those costs um, in terms of things that you should think about in terms of an organization or college. The typical one usually talked about is those income costs. You know, if we don't reopen, we lose all that revenue stream. We lose all that profit. So that's the typical one that people tend to gravitate towards. If we reopen and we're a college, we get the income, the woman board, we get the, you know, the money that we need to remain you know, sustainable, we get the students come back, you know, if, if they're comfortable coming back, depending on the data. And so these are the typical areas people tend to look at. So an organization, similarly, we get the revenue streams coming in if individuals feel comfortable to come and eat or to, you know, um, buy their products. But the other four areas of costs usually get ignored. And the next one I'm going to talk about is human capital. So human capital costs and benefits are very important to think about in terms of both the decision to open a decision to stay closed. There's a lot of preliminary research that's suggesting that, again, this will relate more towards colleges, that online education um, really works well for those at the very top of the distribution. And even looking through the semester where we actually moved online really quickly, as I'm going through the grading, I mean, I'm so disheartened because I can see clearly my own data, you know, that those who, based on their performance before, were, were struggling a little, um, struggled, tr struggled throughout the semester, you know. And so in terms of human capital accumulation, you know, definitely that is going to be a cost for them that has to be thought about because human capital is that key that's going to create productivity in the future. One has to make a decision whether are we just going to lower the standards, but in lowering the standard, there's still that trade-off because then they're not accumulating the human capital. So having talked with many students, you know, who seem to have fallen off the semester, you know, the difficulty was actually learning online, you know, the difficulty was, it was, it was a difficulty for many of them. For a lot of those who had done well from the beginning, they stayed doing well till the end. And so that human capital cost sometimes gets ignored. 
but it's something that has to be factored in. And if you think about, okay, maybe we, we, we decide that we're going to open, you know, then one has to think about what's the cost on those individuals in terms of their human capital loss. Another cost that tends to be ignored is security. And Anthony Davis talked a lot about this. If we are going to reopen, huge amount of costs that you have to think about, you know, just a lot of costs. You know, for example, you know, how are you going to do testing constantly? How are you going to do isolation? How are you going to be able to get everyone into the dorms, you know, with six feet apart? How are we going to be able to, you know, um, clean constantly? Those are costs. How are we going to enforce social distancing? You're going to need people to do that. Those are costs. And so if all those costs, are, and there's so many, if you do not factor in those costs and just think about the revenue stream, then you might end up with a wrong decision making because those are a lot of costs to get ignored and to underplay those costs, costs right now, but they could end up being enormous. And of course, there's the whole cost that you just talked about in terms of potential litigation. You know, that's another thing that one has to try to project into the future. Another area that one has to think about is just the overall health costs. And this is two, two ways. You know, how do we value human life? Economists, you know, we tend to put numbers on everything, you know, but those numbers are contestable. You know, I could sit down here and I could contest every number I've read in the last few weeks that economists have put, tried to put a value on human life. And that's because even in trying to value human life, you have to think about all the people connected to that individual and the impact on them and how that's going to affect and create a multiply effect over time. And there's so much research that suggests the impacts of trauma on children. And so if you don't factor those other extra costs and you have this little value you're giving to human life, which I've seen in some preliminary papers, then you might get those costs wrong too. You know, another thing to think about if you reopen and people start falling sick, then again, people start using the healthcare insurance, insurance plans. And what happens when you come back to renegotiate later, those costs go up, you know? And so that's another thing that people might tend to ignore, but also very important to think about. But I have to talk about the other side also. If you delay reopening, there's also some preliminary research that's suggesting that there's been an increase in anxiety and depression for those who are at home. So again, that's a real cost. I mean, I, I, I get two cases right now that I know personally, and it's, if it's not people I know, I wouldn't believe. This were totally okay before this crisis started, but have, but have really, 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 and I really, any really bad place right now. And so those are costs that sometimes get ignored. That also in this conversation have to be talked about. And putting value to these costs are not easy, you know. Finally, um, I want to talk about the food security costs. I know that might not apply as to organizations generally, but for kids through 12, this is an important level of cost. You know, we know that a lot of children do benefit from the school feeding program. And, you know, when we had to go, you know, take students off school, school this, this semester, many of them lost those two meals they used to have. Even though there were measures put in place that they could come and try and get the food, again, preliminary research suggests that there's a lot of gaps. So we do have children that are passing through food insecurity right now linked with this crisis. So how do we value that? How do we cost that? And so those kind of costs tend to be ignored in looking at income and without a holistic view of cost, which is difficult, but it's necessary. The decisions we end up making might seemingly look optimal from a very limited view, but could end up being suboptimal. And more, more importantly, could have unintended consequences that could actually have long-run effects on organizations, institutions, and even for the whole economy. So I guess I was uh, called on to address this too. And 
it's an incredibly complicated question. And I really think I like the way uh, Beth has framed the whole decision and the, the, the considerations, uh, especially for a college, especially for a college like Agnes Scott, to try to balance the way we've traditionally operated, the business model we've had, if you will, or the educational model of, uh, it's so relational, and yet at the same time to worry about the cost and dangers and health threats in particular. And I also think I really like the way Ruth sets it up with certain costs and benefits. And so I don't need to uh, address those things again. Um, I'll focus a little more macro and not so specifically on colleges, I guess. Um, one thing, of course, is the way the federal government and its aid plans are helping us address some of these costs and benefits. And to tell you the truth, it seems to me we have uh, mostly question marks at this point. Just one thing in terms of cost, and Beth, you might want to address this, but in terms of legal cost, uh, my understanding is that the next uh, wave of aid is at least uh, uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell would like to condition any more aid on some sort of immunity from liability for organizations. And I'm not quite sure how that would work in federal legislation since most tort uh, uh, liability presumably comes from states and I don't know exactly what it has in mind. That has a sort of ironic effect of maybe protecting organizations from potential costs, but it has the other effect of shifting all those costs for health-related issues and disastrous consequences right back onto the individuals uh, who are already bearing the health problems and that sort of thing. So that's one thing. The other thing is, again, what kind of aid. Uh, um, we, uh, as a, the, the aid so far has to some extent been targeted directly to individuals, both in the sense of uh, extended uh, sick leave to many employees who are not eligible to sick leave, for sick leave, paid sick leave, probably about 71% of Americans have that, but it's very, uh, very much scaled along the class. Uh, ladder going down to maybe 30% for workers who ironically do the most essential jobs. Uh, same thing, we are one of the only countries in the world without paid care leave and the, some of the legislation has enacted that temporarily and that'll help. Uh, direct payments of $1,200 per person and 500 per kid, uh, but other other people have suggested that doing it the way we are doing it, mostly through aiding small business and then separate uh, packages for big corporations, that had we taken all that money and sent it to people as opposed to organizations, it would be instead of $1,200, $24,000 per person. And uh, other people more seriously have suggested maybe the Scandinavian model, the Danish model, which I'm not sure I understand much about, but it's more support the income of the workers as opposed to filtering it through the corporate shells. So, so that's all to be said. I guess my main concern uh, on the equity issue is protecting these essential workers, which again, 
sometimes now we we are appreciating them and putting up signs and saying prayers for them but uh, these are the workers who are the least paid they have the least job security they have the worst work and so there are several things i think we might think about um, some people have suggested that while the spotlight is on this kind of essential work maybe we ought to do something about it uh, more long lasting one thing is protecting speech uh, there have been several um, hospitals noted that have imposed gag orders and here healthcare workers nurses are speaking out against the horrible conditions and the lack of protective uh, equipment and uh, they're subject to discharge under at-will employment law and so most americans i think seem not to be aware of their lack of constitutional rights at work yes the state of georgia or the united states can't throw you in jail for criticizing the conditions in your workplace and you know there's some other qualifications theoretically their rights to organize and concerted uh, protected activity but we don't have constitutional rights and it seems like to me that uh, this crisis has shown exactly how much uh, a right to speak in the workplace uh, is worth not just for the person speaking but for other people who need to know about what's going on in the workplace when there's a public health crisis uh, another idea that comes from a California Santa Barbara professor, Nelson Lichtenstein, suggested, uh, Beth talked about OSHA and uh, rules that they're imposing. I don't study OSHA, but my understanding is that the enforcement of OSHA is weak to non-existent. Uh, I've heard the figure that uh, if you're waiting for an OSHA inspection of every workplace in America would take 165 years for just one visit from OSHA to every workplace. So uh, his idea is more or less a Swedish model where workers are uh, authorized to form safety committees, health and safety committees, to uh, monitor and work with management in uh, making workplaces safe and healthy to work in. and uh, puts a little more responsibility and a little more empowerment in the hands of workers and doesn't depend on government bureaucrats as much. It's an interesting idea of how we might uh, take advantage of this crisis to address some of the inequalities and inequities and silences that uh, characterize American uh, society and workplaces in particular in the long run. Thank you so much, you two. Um, so impactful. In my notes, I have from Professor Ruth, you know, costs, not re revenue, um, and its costs are so underplayed, but they're so important. You now we usually see humans as little value, especially those who don't quite get the attention that they deserve. And same with you, Professor Gus. It's just a reminder of how much politics go into the way we our daily lives live and um, the different models around the world. And, Maybe we should look at those and see what we can learn from them as well. Um, let's go to our fourth question. This is for everyone, uh, so feel free to chime in. Let's see, do you think the decisions to reopen are premature? 
Oh, I was just a little about this. Um, I really think it's based on where. So in Georgia, for example, um, the CDC guidelines were not actually met. So the CDC guidelines said you need 14 days of decline. Those weren't met. So in that context, it, it appears to be premature. But it all depends on the, the parts of the world and the data they're using. A lot of the decisions we make in Europe, especially in Germany and in Denmark, are all data-driven. So it would be hard to say in those contexts that it's, it's premature. But in Georgia's case, I mean, I would say personally it is premature because we hadn't met those guidelines. But more importantly, in terms of the economic implications of opening, and I want to touch on some of the macro issues from the point of view of an economist. See, what we've done in the last few months is we've used monetary policy and fiscal policy to try to show up the economy. The economy was in a free fall because of this economic crisis. And so we're going to be we're pretty much, I mean, all the data shows that without trying to show up the economy, we're going to go into what, probably worse than the Great Depression. So all the attempts we've tried to make in the last few months in terms of the CARES Act, and the Family First Act, the PPA protection and the help, which amounts to, actually it first was 2.5 trillion, then we had the 500 billion, another 500 billion, were all attempts to show up the economy to prevent this huge contraction. But here's the challenge. All the money we are spending, we actually don't have. So this, I, I teach macroeconomics, so I was teaching this semester, and I could hear students just say, huh? I'm like, yeah. You know, we have been in a period when, even when we're in an expansionary phase, the US has actually been running deficits. What that means is that the amount of money we are getting in is much less than our outlay and our expenditures. So we've been spending much more than we've been getting in even when we're in an expansion. So prior to March 1st, the US has been, has been in an expansion since 2018. We've been actually in an inflationary gap, and that's an economic term of saying that we're actually beyond potential output. What, the, what this crisis has done is to push us downwards to be now in a recessionary gap, and this measures our attempt to prevent the effects of this from being long-lasting. But the money, we don't have it. Anytime we actually have a, a gap, we borrow money. So what we do is we, we simply borrow the money. And so this trillions that are going on right now, again, is borrowed money. Now, I talk about this in class about the GDP and the debt to GDP ratio. That has been increasing for some time. And this is only going to increase now, but we had to do that because this crisis was severe. You know, there was no, we, 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 we didn't have many options really, because if we had tried anything, the economy would have crashed even more. But the question becomes, if we delay opening, if, you know, how are we going to protect those who, this policies that we've created, will not have safety networks beyond July? For example, the $600 we are giving those who um, lost their jobs, we're giving them $600 extra per week, apart from unemployment benefits, expires in July. Now, trying to extend that is becoming so contentious in DC right now because people don't want to do it. There's a lot of politics going on. So if we don't open, those individuals will lose that 2,400 that's actually helping them and showing them up right now. And they are left with only the unemployment benefits. And even though that has been expended, extended till December, it's still very little, I mean, compared to what they actually earned. So for these individuals, they're going to bear a huge burden of what is going on if we can pass more, more new bills in Congress. But anything we pass, let's keep in mind, that we don't actually have the money and we are borrowing. And then the question becomes, 
how how much can we borrow? You know, are we unfairly putting a burden on future generations? That's a question that sometimes comes to my mind too. Because remember, this money has to get paid in future periods. You know, so that's one thing to think about in terms of economic implications, why you know people might think about opening. But again, like the things I mentioned early, earlier, if you're going to open, are we willing to take all those measures that some other countries have taken? I mean, are we willing to be draconian about this, wearing the masks, you know, social distance and things that are being done in Asia, and we look and think that we can't do that here. If we don't take it all into account, then again, we might have another crisis where a lot of people are fall sick and die, and that's a huge issue. But I don't want us to miss some of the important issues with, with, with relation to the fact that, you know, this, this shock has created a huge increase in our borrowing money. We, ha we had no other options. We just had to borrow money to deal with the shock. But that is already building on a lot of years when we should not have been borrowing, that we are borrowing still. And that really makes the future for those who are going to have to pay this back a huge cost for them. So something for us to think about. I hate to chime in. I know once everyone's answered this question, but we are running out of time. So I'm gonna ask our last question and everyone can answer for this question as well. Um, as we look to the future, what do you see as the role of colleges, professors, students, and our primary listeners in ensuring that the most vulnerable are protected, that we do not deepen their burdens? The, the challenges um, that colleges and universities face um, are in many respects the same as um, every business that I deal with at this point. It's not a question of how can we plow forward the way we have before. It's what can we what can we do now and what how can we move forward with our however you define your mission um, safely for our constituents, for our employees, for our, uh, for our students. And I am inclined to think that colleges and universities are perhaps more than other businesses um, driven to continue to operate as much as possible um, and to the extent possible and as creatively as possible. Um, on the one hand, we're all struggling to figure out how to move forward, what we can do and what we can't do under the current circumstances. We're all used to brick and mortar institutions, dealing with each other face to face, and that's easy uh, in terms of how we know how to foster relationships and to carry out our activities that way. Uh, most everyone I know is seriously missing that personal component to their day-to-day -day activities. Um, by the same token, we're finding through technology and other means incredibly creative ways to do what needs to be done. Um, I've been incredibly impressed with stories that I've heard about Agnes Scott professors using 
technology, and frankly, social media as ways to connect with students. And they're as fascinated as I am that the students seem to be more proactive, more involved, more engaged and communicative in a social media setting than they are face-to-face. -face. That was something I hadn't expected. Um, but it makes sense to me in light of the generation. Um, I, I think it's critical that colleges and universities continue, um, that there's not a pause in their mission. Um, if all else fails, students need to know that they're going to graduate and be able to move to grad school, get the job, move into uh, becoming a, a productive adult, um, and whatever their next step is. And I'm impressed that colleges and universities with, in most instances, from what I've seen, a week's notice, which was spring break, figured out how to continue to do that. Some did it better, some did it not as well. I think depending on what you're studying and what you're trying to accomplish, uh, it's easier than others. But, um, but I, my reaction is it's critically important that they continue. So much. Um, we're going to give about a minute or so for Professor Ruth and Gus to give their um, remarks on this question. Um, so I think that the role that colleges play is very important. Data is so important. I think the need to collect a lot of data on your own institution, your own community is critical. How are the students feeling? You know, what are their responses? So I think data is such an important part of this process. You can't use national data because there's so much heterogeneity across different groups. We, colleges have different constituents they, they, they meet needs for. And so it's really important to collect data at the institutional level. And I think once that data is collected, those decisions will be made. And even when those decisions might affect people or have the potential affecting the vulnerable, the question becomes, what is the creative ways institutions can make sure those people's needs are met? If there's a professor who has an underlying condition and the, you know, and the decision is, we're going to reopen, we're gonna have a, a late reopening, that doesn't remove that condition from that professor. How can an institution try to be able to help that professor to teach their class online? If there are students who can't return to campus, can we have a dual model where, you know, few are on campus, others are online? Yes, it's going to create extra cost, but I think being able to be nimble and creative some of the things that um, Beth talked about is very, very important. But institutions must think holistically about their own constituents and how to do that. And from professors, we have to be innovative, you know, yes. Like, it was amazing how we all got online, you know, able to finish the semester. You know, I think we're already making plans in the econ department how we can do this better in the fall. So we're already getting ahead of this game, given, you know, um, we don't know what it's going to look like in the fall. And so we're going to try to get ahead of the game and prepare for both, for, for both instances. So that's, that's our plan right now, you know. Um, so I think that's how professors can also play a role, because if you try to get ahead of the game, then you're more likely to meet a wider net of people. And finally, for students, 
students can create the awareness. You know, institutions might know about vulnerable groups on a more surface level, but students interact with these people daily. And so they can create a voice for these individuals who might have been missed in all the discussions and make sure that even if the main decision is not going to favor them, there are ways of compensating or mitigating it for these individuals. And so I'll weigh in, and at the risk of sounding like a typical story-eyed professor, I'm going to say that I think what colleges ought to do is recenter the curriculum at the heart of the collegiate uh, mission, and in particular, liberal arts, which is all about asking fundamental big questions. And uh, so I think what we need to do is ask the big questions and have dialogue about that. Uh, somebody has said that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. Uh, they were talking about climate change. Uh, I won't pick on just capitalism. Let me just say the status quo. We have this tendency to uh, think that tomorrow will be like today. And I think what Beth said about businesses having to rethink their business model it's true of society. I think we're going to have to go back to real basic questions and ask how do we live in particular, for instance, I think we're going to have to reflect back and think uh, about a particular model of neoliberal globalization that we've followed for several decades. I think we're going to have to think ahead about climate change and where we're going and are we going over a cliff there. And then the last thing I would say is the liberal arts and colleges I think need to model dialogue uh, for the rest of society. We've gotten to the point where we almost can't talk to each other. Um, the AJC had a column by Jim Galloway yesterday talking about some people wearing masks and other people not wearing masks. And it's become almost a political statement. He said, your face is your bumper sticker now. Um, that's sad. That's not much dialogue. Uh, and we're a college classroom at a liberal arts college is the epitome of a place where people ought to be able to think about and question and disagree on and actually talk about uh, real fundamental issues of society. And I think that's what we can do going forward. Thank you all so much. This is literally perfect. This podcast was designed with the question in mind, and you all gave some powerful and insightful words for our audiences and more. Um, I wish we had more time, but unfortunately, this is our closing remarks session. So please give us um, any final thoughts or remarks you'd like to leave us with. I'd like to go first. Um, I think that um, the world we're going to experience post-COVID-19, this pandemic, is going to be different from the world we've had before in any circumstance. And trying to make sure that we are prepared for it is really important. I think we have to be very creative. Things are still very fluid right now. Data, data, data. I know it is my bias, but I think data is going to be so critical in making decisions as we, as we, as we, as we, we clog along. And I think it's important also to be able to step back when we make mistakes and we, you know, we, we, we evaluate things and change costs. There are going to be hurdles, there are going to be bumps, blips, you know, as we begin to try to figure things out and find out, oops, you know, we didn't think about that cost, oops. But being able to be open about it, transparent from the top in terms of country level all the way down 
becomes very important if we are going to be able to have a world post COVID-19 that is going to be better and better for all. Well, I would like to thank you for sponsoring this uh, podcast. And if Ruth is emphasizing data, I will emphasize dialogue. And that puts the pressure on Beth to come up with another D so we can be nice and alliterative. But uh, I think I totally agree that this is a chance for us to uh, step back a little bit while we're isolated in our homes and think about uh, some real important questions that we've taken for granted before and to try to learn from this experience because I do think things are going to be different going forward and uh, I appreciate the chance to talk about and think about this with other people today. I, I also have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation um, and and while I'm not prepared to be alliterative, um, um, the word that comes to my mind um, as in terms of what we need to be and, and how we need to be is nimble. Um, I, I agree with Ruth completely. We need data. We need all the data we can get our hands on. Um, and we can't make decisions until we have them, but we can't wait until we have the data to prepare. Uh, we need to be planning now and uh, for whatever is going to come and however we're gonna move forward. And we need to be prepared to dodge and pivot um, along the way. And, and I have um, every confidence that we can figure out how to do that. Again, thank you so much to our panelists. You all did a beautiful job. Um, to recap, data, dialogue, and being nimble. Uh, if you like what you heard, Check out our previous episodes found on any podcast platforms. And of course, thank you to our listeners. Uh, without you, we wouldn't have any audiences, you know. Thank you for taking the time to join us in this conversation. I hope something was said or done and you learned something and your call to action is inspired and your flame is sparked. I'm definitely feeling it. I'm feeling hype and ready to make a change. <laughs> but I wish everyone a safe, wonderful day. And again, thank you so much for tuning in. Subscribe on your favorite podcast provider and get new episodes as they become available.